Let's now open God's holy word to Psalm 103. text that we'll consider together this evening is verse 4, and we'll read the entirety of the psalm together now. This is the word of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Thus far we read, let's reread verse 4, which is the text. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies.
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 103 is precious. Probably many of you have memorized the psalm or portions of it. Very memorable, very comforting, very beautiful. And what, as a golden thread, weaves its way through the entirety of the psalm is the doctrine of the mercy of Jehovah. And that's a wonderful golden thread to weave its way through, isn't it? The mercy of Jehovah. And that's what you notice in verse 4, weaves its way into our text too, when it talks about the loving kindness and the tender mercies of the Lord. At the beginning of Psalm 103, what the psalmist David is doing is he's speaking to his own soul. It's good to do that. It's good to have a conversation with yourself, as the psalmist does here. He says, in praise and worship to God, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It's as if at the beginning of the psalm, He's at 35,000 feet up, and he's looking at the whole landscape, all these different things that the Lord has done, all these benefits, and he lumps them all together as he looks at the landscape, and he just puts it in the plural. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. That's how he begins. And then in the verses after... Verses 1 and 2, he's continuing to speak to his soul, but now he becomes specific. Comes down from 35,000 feet, low to the ground, to look at each individual benefit that the Lord has bestowed upon him. And so he begins doing that in verse 3. Remember, he's still talking to his soul. He's talking about God here, who forgiveth, all thine iniquities, there's a benefit. Who healeth all thy diseases, there's another benefit. And then now, talking to a soul still, you come into our text. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, there's another benefit. And now, as we're at that part of the landscape, we're going to magnify this one. He redeems you, soul, from destruction, and he does it in his so great mercy. So let's look at that together. The soul redeemed, crowned, and blessing is our theme. Let's take those right in order. Number one, the first point, redeemed, and then the second point, crowned, and then the third point, and briefly, blessing. So Psalmist David and you and I, we're talking to our soul and he says about that soul or about his life that it has been redeemed from destruction. Whenever you're redeemed 
And we're going to get to that in a few moments, what redeemed is. But whenever you're redeemed, you're always redeemed from something. And what the psalmist says, he and you and I have been redeemed from is destruction. That word destruction is literally pit. So you'd do total justice to the passage if you would read it this way. Who redeemeth thy life from the pit. I would like you to imagine, for a sake of an illustration, and keep this illustration and this picture in your mind as we go through the sermon. I'd like you to imagine a hole in the ground or a pit. This, this crevice. It's very, very deep, this pit is. It's narrow. The walls are almost right next to each other. It's a narrow pit. It's pitch black in there. Extremely dark. And... If you're in that hole and there's no rescuer for you, you're in there and there's no escape, no escape left to oneself. And in this deep, narrow, dark crevice in the earth, there can only be ruin and destruction and misery way down deep in that hole. That's what you ought to have in mind. The question is, what is destruction or pit in our text? What is that referring to? Three things I want to point out to you that destruction or pit is. First of all, destruction or pit is, very literally speaking now, the grave. That pit or that hole in the ground where a person, after they have died, is put. It's the grave. I say that because this word, destruction, is used in other parts of the Old Testament very clearly in those other passages to refer to that actual hole in the ground, which we call the grave. You know something of the grave, don't you? It's a place of Corruption, and by that I mean decomposition of the body. It's the place where the body rots. It's a place, obviously, of death, and it's a place of utter isolation, too. Someone who's put down into that hole, they're there all alone, all alone. Literally, it's deep. It's narrow, it's dark, and left to oneself, it's inescapable. There's a certain finality to it. You know that if you've ever been to the cemetery for a loved one. Who can describe the pain of having that casket suspended above the hole? And then maybe you stayed long enough for, to see it rolled down into the hole even. But either way, you have to get back in your vehicle. 
and you have to drive home, and you're never going to see that person on this side of Jordan ever again. There's a certain finality to it. And in that pit, the body, which is dead obviously, turns to dust. What we always have to remember is that death itself, but also the body turning back into the dust of the earth, is not a natural happening. This is not something built into the creation and, well, this is just how it goes. No, it's not. Death and the body turning to dust is a consequence of sin. Man fell into sin. And now listen to what the Lord says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. In the sweat of thy face, God says to Adam, Thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. He says that to man after he fell into sin. It's a consequence of that fall. So destruction or pit is very literally speaking the grave in the ground. Secondly, destruction or pit And now we're going to speak figuratively. This pit is spiritual death. Spiritual death. You might put it this way. Spiritual death is like a pit. Why do I say that this is spiritual death? Well, if you look at the verse that comes right before our text, Psalm 103, verse 3, it reads this way. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. And when it talks about diseases there, it's not talking about physical bodily infirmities that people might have, let's say like cancer. It's not talking about those, but spiritual diseases, and especially that old man, that corrupt nature, that total depravity, So that we can even say we're conceived and born in sin. We're born spiritual stillborns. That's what we're talking about here. That corrupt nature, that spiritual death. And now that whole idea of diseases in verse 3 is carried over into our text. And when it talks about destruction or the pit, you ought to think of it as that whole idea of spiritual death. That too is a result of man's fall into sin, as we know well. If you go back to Genesis, now chapter 2, verse 17, God said to Adam very clearly, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam, you eat of that tree that I forbid of you, you're going to die in that day. And part of the sense of that is spiritual death. That very moment, you're going to die spiritually. You're going to become totally depraved. And that's true of you and me, too, in this sense. When Adam fell into sin... He became guilty for that, and Adam's guilt was imputed 
or reckoned to the human race. And because we're guilty, we're also then conceived and born in this spiritual death, total depravity. It makes sense, doesn't it? That spiritual death is compared to a pit. As in a pit in the earth, you can't see anything because it's so dark down in there. That's what's true of total depravity, too. Did you know that our canons describe what happened to man in the fall this way? There's now blindness of mind for him and horrible darkness. And as in a pit, there are these steep sides that go down. And without anyone to rescue you, you're down in there and there's no escape for you. So also for total depravity, there's no power in a man that he has in himself that he could possibly get himself out of this spiritual condition. No man in you and I of ourselves cannot get ourselves out of this. And as in a pet, the person down in that hole without a rescuer comes to destruction and utter ruin. That's the way our Belgic Confession in Article 16 speaks of the human race apart from God's grace. It is in ruin. And what it means there is this complete spiritual destruction, this, this hopeless situation out of which there's no escape. Destruction is spiritual death. First of all, it's the grave. Second of all, it's spiritual death. And the third thing that destruction or pit in our text refers to, and again, we're going to speak figuratively, is eternal death in hell. You might put it this way, hell is like a pit. Why do I say that this word refers even to hell? Well, because the Bible in other places sometimes speaks of hell in terms of a hole that you go down into. Let me give you one example of that. Proverbs chapter 7. Verse 27, this is that well-known chapter on the strange woman who is to be avoided at all costs. And verse 27, the last verse of that chapter goes like this. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. That's very sobering, isn't it? It pictures hell like this chamber or this giant room and you go, notice this, down or you descend into this chamber of hell like you're going down a staircase. And the Bible speaks of that more often in terms of hell like a pit 
that's very deep. And so what we have here is hell, and hell is a terrible place. It's where God's fierce, unrelenting anger is being poured out constantly. Hell is the place where those who are in it, there is just a dreadful suffering under that outpoured wrath of God. And it doesn't quit. It goes on and on and on and on. Hell is everlasting. It makes sense that also hell is described or compared to a pit, doesn't it? As in a hole in the ground, there's darkness all around you. The Bible also describes hell as a place of outer darkness. Remember when Jesus taught that? It's a place that's very, very far away from the well-lit, warm, fellowship-filled place called heaven, that banquet hall. Hell is very far away from there. In fact, it's way over here. It's a place of outer darkness. It's pitch black. And that's a figure too, simply meaning there's no fellowship in hell. I think sometimes people think of hell like prison. Well, it's not a very nice place, but at least I get to be with the guys and we can yuck it up a little bit from time to time. That's not what hell's going to be like. Utter loneliness in hell. And as in a pit, it's something that you can't escape from. So, once someone is in hell, they can never get out. And as in a hole in the ground, it's a place of destruction and ruin and misery. The Bible also describes hell as destruction. Not in the sense that Someone who goes to hell is annihilated. Some people teach that today. You're annihilated after a while and you're brought to non-existence so that you don't suffer in hell anymore. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about destruction. In the sense, rather, of everlasting misery and suffering the punishment of God. If you ask, for just a short phrase to summarize what destruction is pit of death in every sense of the word narrow deep dark terrible place don't you praise the lord then beloved That he's redeemed you from that. That's what the psalmist says. And that's what he's worshiping the Lord for. He says it to his soul. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Redemption is a very beautiful idea. It's a, you might say... If salvation is a pie, then redemption is one slice of that, and a very important slice of what the Bible means by salvation. 
Redemption is the payment of a price to secure freedom. That's what it is to be redeemed. The payment of a price to secure freedom here from the pit of death. Whenever you have redemption, of course, you have a redeemer, someone who carries it out, someone who does it. And it's no secret who this redeemer is. It's Jehovah. Our text begins, who redeemeth thy life from destruction? The question is, who's that who? Go to the beginning of the psalm. Bless the Lord, that's Jehovah. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who, that same Lord, that same Jehovah, has redeemed you from destruction. He's done it. Which is to say, redemption, like all the other slices in the pie of salvation, are not our work. They're his alone. His alone. Think about it. We couldn't ever redeem ourselves. How are you going to redeem yourself when you're down in that deep, dark, narrow hole? You could never do it. If you're going to be redeemed, it's the Lord that must do it. And he does do it. Does that for his elect people and for you and for me and for David. And he does it in Jesus Christ. You would make no mistake and you would do no injustice when you would say, Christ himself is the Redeemer. He is. If you go to the New Testament, that's made very, very plain there. One example is Luke 2. There's that somewhat familiar story of aged Anna, Luke 2, and verse 38. Here's this woman in Israel, part of the elect remnant. She's been looking for the Redeemer. She can't wait for him. And now she's coming to the, to, into the temple, and she sees the baby Jesus right there in front of her eyes. And then in Luke 2, verse 38, we read what she does. She coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. This is going to people who, like her, were looking for redemption. He's here. He's here. She understood that that little baby somehow was the redemption that the Lord sent. And then you go to 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And here, Jesus is identified as the Redeemer as well. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's the Redeemer. And what God in Jesus Christ has done 
is he has paid the price. Well, what's that price? First Peter here says it's not silver or gold. You're not going to find anything of this earth and modern day talk. All the cash in the world is not the price for our redemption. Think about it. Corruptible, earthly things where moth and rust corrupt. You can't use those things for something spiritual. There's got to be something totally different from silver and gold and money and something that's infinitely higher in value and more precious than those things. What could that be? Blood. Blood of Jesus Christ shed. That's the price of our redemption. And that's what 1 Peter 1 especially calls attention to. What a great price that was. You understand, when he shed his blood at the cross, he was giving his very life. That's what the price has to be. He gave his very life. He poured it out. And you cannot find a higher cost than that on the earth. You know what it meant for Jesus Christ to have to pay that price? He had to go down into that pit of death. Literally, he went into the grave. I think sometimes when that sequence in the year comes up, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, we focus on those two things. Don't skip quickly over where he is the rest of Friday and all day Saturday and a little bit on Sunday. He went into that pit in the earth. And notice the gospel even there. We're told that his body, in the book of Acts, we're told his body did not see corruption. His body didn't decompose even after three days because already at the cross he had defeated death. He conquered it. He took the stinger out. And so even though his dead body's in the grave, it doesn't rot there. It doesn't even begin the process. He's defeated death. But he must, and he does. And that's part of the gospel story. Go into that place of corruption and death. The grave. And not only that, he went into the hole of spiritual death. You ever think of it that way? From the cradle to the cross, throughout his whole 33 year something life, it was all a continual death for Jesus. Because it was under the outpoured wrath of God. He carried our iniquity upon his shoulders. The sin bearer and God's wrath beat down upon him in so many ways all the time through his life. And those beatings, that wrath of God, wave after wave, became especially intense as he came to the cross. Or, if I may change the illustration, he 
goes down that staircase step by step until he can't get any lower into the pit. And that's when he's in the darkness at Calvary. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he suffered that death all the way through. And you can say about the Lord Jesus that he suffered in the pit of hell. Not that he went to the actual place. We don't believe that he went to the place of hell. But we do believe that it came to him. You remember what our Heidelberg Catechism says? Very interesting word it uses. He was plunged. When you're plunged into something, you go down into it. And now we're thinking pit again. He was plunged into the anguish and pains and terrors and agonies of the wrath of God. And he suffered in those flames until they were completely extinguished. If you want to summarize what Christ did, for him to pay that price that was necessary for our redemption, he entered into the pit of death in every sense, conquered it and he came back out he came out redemption payment of a price and we just described how Christ did that but remember what's more about redemption the payment of a price to secure freedom in this case from that pit of death, freedom for us. And now here's a very beautiful gospel, beloved, that what Christ did in shedding his blood secured freedom for you and for me and for David from the grave itself. You're going to go down into the grave and your body is going to turn to the dust unless Jesus comes first. That's a fact and that doesn't change. But when the Lord Jesus comes with his angels on the last day, he'll take your body out of that pit, change it from a corruptible to an incorruptible, glorious body fit to live in the new heaven and new earth. That's what he's going to do. He's given you freedom from the grave. And what he did, himself going into that pit and himself facing that death has secured freedom for you also from spiritual death. So that a regenerated believer can already say, on this side of Jordan, I'm free from the slavery and the chokehold and the bondage of sin. I'm free. Not from sin entirely, of course, but from its bondage. Free to serve God in this life. Isn't that a glorious freedom? And I have a foretaste in my heart of everlasting life. And what's only an appetizer now is going to come full reality when I open my eyes in glory. Everlasting, full 
blissful life where pleasures flow forevermore. That's freedom. And what Christ did, beloved, secures freedom also from hell itself. So that you don't have to go there. He's provided for you a great escape in his blood. I don't have to know those flames and that wailing and gnashing of teeth and that loneliness and darkness and the torments of his wrath. But I know now, I will know, that is, glories forevermore in heaven. He secured great freedom. And so the psalmist says here in our text, He's redeemed thy life. Isn't there such an all-encompassing thing to that word life? Everything that you are, your soul, your body, your all, and there's nothing that this gospel word of redemption does not touch upon you tonight. It's a soul that's been redeemed but it's a soul that's been crowned, too. What a wonderful phrase that is. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Loving kindness and tender mercies can be summarized with one word, one doctrine, Mercy. When God has mercy on someone, it's upon those who are in misery, in woe. And I don't have to go at length anymore to tell you what that misery and woe in which we were is. It's that pit of death. But now the point is that God has mercy upon his people. He has mercy upon us. He sees us there in that hole of destruction and that he has mercy means he has compassion upon us. Pity. That especially comes out in that word tender mercies. Have you ever known what it's like to have maybe one of your children, if you're a mother or father, to have one of your children in misery, and to see your son and daughter there in that woe and in that misery makes you hurt. You can even feel that somewhere in this region. You physically ache for that loved one. How much more in the Lord he aches. He's moved toward us in our misery down there in that deep, dark, narrow pit. That's the compassion of the Lord. And his mercy, though, is not just a compassion and pity, although it is that. It's also a power so that when he looks upon us in his compassion, 
down there in that pit. His mercy is also a power in which he lifts us out. And not even just to ground level, but he lifts us so high. And he exalts us and he blesses us in dizzying heights. The mercy of God is a power. Now these two parts of the text. He's redeemed your life from destruction. And now these tender mercies and loving kindnesses is mercy. Those are not two ideas that just happen to be floating next to each other in the same verse. They're very much related to each other in this way. When he redeems us from destruction, that's how he shows to us his loving kindness and tender mercies. When he redeemed us with the precious blood of Christ, that's how he demonstrated, that's how he manifested his mercy toward us. You want to see how full of loving kindness and tender mercy the Lord is toward us? He sent his only begotten son into the flesh to go into the pit and pay that price. You want to see how deeply moved Jehovah is toward you? So moved that he's paid the price to secure your freedom from that darkness and to deliver you from the grave's grasp on the last day and to give you life unending even in heaven. That is some mercy. Some mercy. But it doesn't just say, does it, the text? His loving kindness and his tender mercies are to you or toward you. You've been crowned with them. Crowned. That too is a wonderful little phrase. A crown is meant to show how highly honored someone is. How highly the Lord has exalted you. What beauty he has set on your head. And the amazing thing is, like I said before, he hasn't just taken you out of the pit and brought you to ground level, so to speak. He's brought you much higher than that, not only delivering you from that darkness, but bringing you way high up, even enjoy fellowship with him forever, to those dizzying heights of blessedness. The Lord has so highly honored us. He's crowned us in his mercy. Also, a crown is meant to be displayed. It's, it's meant to be seen by people. That's what a king's crown is, isn't it? The people of his palace and the people of his kingdom seen it, see it, and the king also is very much conscious and remembers he has a crown on his head. So also this crown of loving kindness and tender mercies, it's meant to be displayed. 
What's your identity? This. God has had mercy on me, delivered me from the pit, and given me life forevermore. It's good to remember that. It's good to be conscious, beloved, day by day in our life of the crown that the Lord has placed upon our heads. Won't that change the way that you live your life? Won't that change how you interact with the people inside this auditorium? That the Lord has put this crown of mercy and he's delivered me who was a wretch. That's something that I'm going to go and witness to other people that I meet at work and on the street and in the grocery store if I'm given opportunity to have this conversation. A witness of that. I've got a crown on my head. The Lord has been merciful to me who was in such deepest woe. And this is the crown that we're going to see on each other's heads forever in heavenly glory. And we're going to be admiring that crown that has been placed by the Lord on one another's heads. He's been merciful. But besides showing how highly honored someone is, and besides that it's meant to be displayed, there's something else about a crown. It's something that completely encompasses or surrounds the head. It goes all the way around. So his mercy completely encompasses us. There's nothing lacking in it at all. It's never going to fail. It's not going to be like an excavator machine that lifts something up and then it malfunctions and then suddenly drops that load. The Lord doesn't lift us partially out of the pit and then for some reason or another perhaps changes mind or his mercy is too weak and he drops us back in. And he doesn't lift us out of the pit almost to these heights of blessedness, but not quite there. It's never that way with the mercy of Jehovah. It's complete and it does whatever he wills it to do and it will not fail. And it's an inexhaustible supply. No matter the circumstances of your life, today and right now, saint, and no matter what you wake up to on Monday morning, Lamentations says, His mercies are new. Every morning, it's a crown that goes all the way around. The soul's been redeemed, it's been crowned, and it's a soul that can't do anything but bless. You understand now, people of God? Why he breaks out at the very beginning of the psalm? Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And now he's continuing that conversation with his own soul. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Look what he's done for you, soul. He's saved you from so great a hole. And he's blessed you to such a degree in his mercy. You, soul, have every reason to bless, praise, worship the Lord. You can say, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's redeemed you from destruction. You can say that as you stand at the grave of that believing loved one. And you might say it through tears, but you say it. And you could say, bless the Lord, O my soul. In his mercy, he's taken you out of that pit. You may say that every day. And you will say that into all eternity as you rejoice in the heavenly glory to which mercy has exalted you. Amen. That is what we say, Jehovah Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, but also this benefit. Thou art so merciful, O Lord, so merciful toward us, thy compassions unending, thy power to deliver never exhausted. We praise thee on bended knee tonight. We pray, Father, that this word may be applied to our lives. Forgive us when we are so cold and spiritually insensitive. Confine that within ourselves day by day. Forgive us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.